eighth episode of European Talks, a podcast run by the European Policy Center, a Belgrade-based independent think tank. My name is Dusan Kievovich, and I will be your host today. Today, we are joined by His Excellency, Mr. Kimo Lachdevirta, Ambassador of Finland to Serbia. Your Excellency, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Given the fact you've been in, in um, uh, Beijing for four years, I kind of figured you'd have something to say about the current economic war between, well, war, quote-unquote, mm. um, let's say, let's call it that, between competition, competition yeah. between the U.S. and China, yeah. and how do you see that playing out in 5G, especially with Huawei, and just your general comment on AI. Yeah. So, yeah, we can start with that. Sure, sure. No, no I, I think uh, 5G is certainly one of those areas where, where this great power competition between the U.S. and China is potentially affect also European countries. And here I, I don't mean just EU, but other European countries as well, as well as other countries in the world. And, and that's obviously something that can have great ramifications. And, and um, for, for the EU, at least, I, I think it's very important that, that uh, during uh, the last spring, uh, EU uh, Commission uh, gave a recommendation about how, how to proceed with this issue uh, regarding 5G uh, networks and their, their security. And um, that's, of course, ongoing work. Now, basically, the uh, member states have uh, given their own reports about the present situation, and they are then being compiled into, into one. And then there's consideration of how to proceed with, for example, a toolbox, and then, then what kind of, kind of, let's say, further recommendations and policies are, are created. But, but uh, I think this is very important also for, for other than EU countries, because at this stage, I think it's very important that countries don't make hasty decisions and, and don't make decisions that would affect uh, their, their chances uh, later on of, 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 let's say, choosing in, in what kind of system they will have. And uh, I think. Uh, 5G is, is important because it's, it's the enabling technology basically for, for let's say, uh, the Internet of Things and also, let's say, many applications of artificial intelligence. So it's really fundamental technology that will affect uh, many other things as well. And of course, there's this great power competition also regarding uh, the development of, of, of AI. And, and that's something that, that we Europeans should stick together as well. And I know that, that um, Finland and other European countries are, are quite advanced, for example, in developing the ethical standards for artificial intelligence. So that's, that's really fundamental work for the future in, in many ways. Yeah, so let's, let's, yeah, let's stop there and, and focus on that because um, there's a person by the name Andrew Yang that really drew my attention lately. He's a presidential candidate in America, a Democrat, who's basically running on that platform um, basically saying, look, automation and AI will take over in the next five to ten years. A lot of people will stay without work, and we need to do something about that. And he's running on a platform. He's calling it the freedom dividend because Americans don't like free money. So he kind of figured, I'm not going to call it universal income. I'll call it a freedom dividend. So, and like, how do you see that playing out? Do you think it will really happen in the next five years, or do you think... Well, it's, it's really a difficult question to answer, and, and certainly I, I'm not that kind of, let's say, experts that, that could, with any confidence, say whether that's going to be true or not. But certainly I, I agree that, that that 
is is the the trend that that we should watch for and and there's also a, a very interesting book written by by martin ford a few a couple of years ago the rise of the robots and and uh, it's not science fiction it's, it's very very well rehearsed uh, researched uh, let's say writing and also the main emphasis there is is the, the risk of, of mass unemployment caused by automation and artificial intelligence so that that is something that that i think people should read also to to, to see what kind of direction we might be going into it's not of course certain that that all of, of that will happen but it's it's a distinct possibility anyway yeah it certainly is that's one of the reasons why i was interested in the topic wasn't because i'm particularly like well versed in, in computers or anything like that it was like it was the rising inequality the fact that as technology progresses and as we enter that stage like you need highly educated skilled workers and it's the, the bottom tier that will suffer the most and they're already suffering mm. as it is. So that, that, that's true. But I think with, with uh, let's say, more and more developed algorithm, algorithms and this sort of artificial intelligence, also the, the, the white collar, uh, uh, let's say, people are in danger. For example, already now uh, we have, let's say, this sort of algorithm answering in the phone in banks, uh, mm. these chat channels. And, and also, I think, for example, diagnostics for doctors is something that artificial intelligence is doing and, and it might be true also for for example lawyers that you have these algorithms for, for doing much of the work that assistants for example have been doing so far so so what what started with with blue color professions is spreading into white color professions so so this really can have a profound uh, let's say um, uh, influence on on, on on what people actually can do for living and, and, and what sort of things might be taken over by machines. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think, I mean, the first job that will kind of go will be uh, drivers. And then I think everyone else, like, I think even like, yeah, I think you're right. Lawyers will suffer as well, which is like, doesn't sound um, like something that could happen, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, let's say the, the um, Self-driving cars is something that, that the automobile industry is now developing very fast indeed. And uh, I think it will st still take some time, but it seems that it's coming. And, and considering that, that for the many populations in, in most uh, countries, transportation is the biggest source of, of, of income and, and, and let's say uh, sector of, of profession that, that people do. So it could really have significant uh, impact. Yeah. And that's why I think we also come to the question of what kind of uh, or how can we ensure people decent living standards if, if they can't do those professions that they used to do. And of course, earlier automation has created new jobs, but it's difficult to estimate, at least for me, it's difficult to estimate what kind of new jobs there could be in, in, the, in, in, the, in future. And how many. And how many, yeah. yeah. And that also has, has to do with inequality. Because I think uh, in the 20th century, in, in Western countries especially, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, let's say, the um, enlargement of, of middle class has been a very significant factor for the stability of societies, but also for the mass consumption. Yes. And, and if, if that is somehow changed so that, that middle class is, is diminished again, 
then it would really have profound influence. And, and especially this rising inequality between the highest earners and the rest of the population is something that is, is actually quite worrying. Right. So like, globally, do you think the economy will change significantly? I think it's possible anyway. I, I, I can't predict if that's going to happen, or, but, but anyway, it's, it's a distinct possibility. And certainly if, if that kind of trend is combined with, with then climate change and environmental problems that we should also be able to tackle, it, it's, it's an interesting mix, I would say. Okay. Let's, let's jump into that topic. Let's talk about climate change a little bit. You mentioned that Finland, you believe, is one of the leaders in, in ethics when it comes to AI. And uh, what has Finland been doing uh, to mitigate climate change? And I know that's one of your priorities in, in, during your presidency. So, if... Certainly, yeah. It, it's, it's one of the things that, that we, we, especially with the present government in Finland that took office in, in June, uh, we, we want to make Finland, first of all, carbon neutral by 2035. And, and that should also help make the EU carbon neutral by 2050. And that's actually one of the priorities that, that we try to take forward during our presidency so that by the end of this year we would have at least the fundamentals for the, for the EU long-term long -term strategy to achieve this. Okay. Um, so I know the initial investment to, to kind of even start going towards that path towards carbon neutrality is, is uh, I mean, it's a large investment. And do you think the EU will have to step up and play a significant role here because I don't, looking at it from this perspective, I don't know where the money would come from for a country like Serbia to, to go towards that path. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, EU certainly uh, should and can and, and, and is already helping in this regard. And, and actually some of the um, uh, pre-accession funds or, or much of the pre-accession funds is already uh, channeled to, to environmental, uh, let's say, issues and, and projects. But I, I think uh, this should not be looked at just as an expense, but, but um, I think circular economy and, and carbon neutrality and clean technologies are a significant business opportunity. And, and I think that's something that people should realize better, that it, it's not it's not wasting money to, 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 to turn around in this, but it's actually the source of, of new professions and, and new businesses and revenues and so forth. So, so it's, it's much, it has much to do how you look at this thing. Right. So like you, you believe it, could, I mean, it does kind of create new industries, yeah? I mean, if you have new recycling centers. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's... Indeed, yeah. And also, for example, how, uh, the, the way how you can reduce dependency on hydrocarbons. Is, is something that, that if you can use more, more let's say, domestic uh, uh, sources, well, energy might be more difficult, for example, here. But uh, solar energy, wind energy, uh, wave energy, there are all kinds of possibilities in the energy sector. And then uh, considering uh, more large or, or more in a larger way, uh, if you recycle more, it, it will decrease the need of raw materials. And, and I think in all the countries, there's plenty of ways to be utilized better than, than is presently the case. Yeah, definitely, certainly, yeah. Um, let's let's uh, tie into uh, Finland, Finland's presidency with, with Serbia. I mean, the Romanian presidency of the European Union Council um, was a period of, let's say, limited attention towards Western Balkans. And I think there's a, a sense that we missed an opportunity given that there were like three consecutive uh, presidencies from this region. 
and now that Finland is, I mean, Finland is, is pretty far from Serbia, and like, what can we expect from this presidency? Uh, I mean, it's a selfish question, but... Uh, yeah, well, I, I think, I would say that distance doesn't really matter here, but, but Finland sees enlargement of the EU as a strategic investment into the peace, uh, stability and, and development of whole of Europe. So, so we, we see it as a strategic priority and which, which we will take forward seriously. Also now during our presidency and uh, we, will, uh, we, we don't have any numeric targets what to achieve. But you can rest assured that we will do our very best to achieve concrete results because we certainly see it very important that, that all the Western Balkans countries uh, continue to have a realistic EU perspective. I, I think it's fundamental really. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in a sense, for us at least, like it's, we're, we're the missing piece of, of the EU, we're kind of like, we're there, we're part of Europe, but we just need to like, you know, be the final puzzle, a piece of the puzzle. Indeed, considering that, that all the, let's say, countries around Serbia and, and Montenegro and North Macedonia and other countries of Western Balkans are already in the EU. So, so really, it's not a question of enlargement, but completing the, the union in a way. Right, I think it's a good, uh, good way to look at it, yeah. yeah. And uh, we hope Europe feels the same, but yeah. Yeah, well, I think certainly what's important is, is that uh, in the EU member states, uh, there, there, is, there must be support for the enlargement. And, and our politicians and officials must have some material on how to sell enlargement to, those, or to also those people who might be skeptical. And that's why it's also very important that the applicant countries do their homework and, and do the reforms like concerning rule of law, free media, and, and then uh, autonomous and independent courts. So that uh, the rule of law and, and, and these basic values that, that we, we see as fundamental for EU are, are fulfilled also here. Because that way, I, I think people can better see what kind of contribution also the applicant countries can bring to the EU. Right. So that's, that's certainly an area that we struggled with, uh, a rule of law. And I know that's one of your priorities as well during the presidency. Um, and the conditionality can be a bit tricky uh, because then people have a sense that EU is pushing us to do things that we don't wish to do. Um, but in reality, I mean, citizen, citizens will benefit from a, a strong uh, rule of law. Uh, so it's, it's really up to the politicians to step up and do something. So how do you see that? It's like, can the EU push us more there or is it a, a thin line? Well, I, I think... Uh, the role of the EU is, is to point out uh, the things where, where more efforts are needed. And that's what it is basically doing in these yearly reports and, and, and interim reports. Uh, so, uh, so that's the thing uh, that, that the EU can do. And it can also give uh, financial and, and uh, technical support to, to fulfill the requirements and change the legislation and, and, and improve the implementation. But, but in the end, it's, it is really the politicians of the applicant countries who must make a strategic choice whether to, to really embark on this, uh, these reforms or not. And, and so far, I think both sides have expressed a resolute commitment to, to, to be on the road towards the EU. And, and this is, I think, significant that both parties have, have actually expressed willingness uh, for enlargement. And, and it, of course, means that both parties need to fulfill their part. 
that's something that's interesting that like all of our major parties here are pro-EU, which is certainly helpful. Uh, but also there, there's, there's an issue with, uh, I mean, the, we've done that research about four months ago, where we looked at the factors that influence uh, people's perception of the EU and as to why they support EU or why they oppose the EU. Uh, and believe it or not, it was like people 60 and above were the biggest supporters for membership. And like, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it took us like a little while. We were like, oh, I was like, okay, our president, Vucic, is, uh, he supports the EU path. Older people vote for him. So it's kind of like, then we finally figured out the link. But it's like young people are, it was literally like 33% opposed, 33% weren't undecided, and 33 supported. So it's like they don't know what to do. Yeah. Like, it, it's a confusing time. Yeah. And of course, I can understand that the, the, because the process has already taken quite some time. Yes. And, and uh, there's no certainty really when it will end. So, so it can be frustrating, and uh, and, and and I I just hope that that uh, that uh, more progress could be made and, and quicker, because it, it, I think it's very important, especially for youngsters, that they have a realistic perspective uh, of, of the EU membership, so that they don't, for example, move to other countries. Because I think I think brain drain is certainly a problem also here. Huge, huge. I mean, I, I always joke, I don't have a single friend who, does, who doesn't want to leave, who wants to stay. Mm -hmm. And that's also for other countries in the Western Balkans, so that if people don't see realistic prospects of doing well here, of course they, they want to see other alternatives. Yes, that makes sense. And it's, it's mostly Europe. Um, yeah. European, other European countries, yeah. Mm, Although, yeah. An increasing number has been going to China, actually. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. But also, of course, the EU is not a paradise. There, there are a lot of things that need to be done better also there. And therefore, I, I think also, uh, as, as we have seen in the criticism towards the EU, uh, um, people sometimes feel alienated. That, that Brussels is far away and, and, and not enough things are happening in, in concrete terms in their own countries to improve their lives. And especially after the financial crisis of 2008, it's, it's very understandable that people feel frustrated and, and they, they, they want to see a better future than, than seemed possible after that. Right. So that's something, it's like, I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I was born in Canada and I, I spent a good chunk of my life there. And like most Canadian academics kind of, I shouldn't say laugh, but it's like they take the EU lightly precisely because of that. What you touched on there is like, well, how are you going to cooperate and coordinate from Brussels to like explain that to, to someone in Serbia in a village of 5,000 people? It's like, it's very difficult and the bureaucracy is very complicated. So that's one of the main reasons why North American academics kind of look at the whole thing and go. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and, and it is difficult to explain the, the structure of the EU, even, even to, to officials in EU countries. Right. Uh, it takes time to, to get uh, familiar with the system and, and what kind of, let's say, uh, institutions there are actually, because there are quite a few. Right. And do you think the EU, looking at it from an economic standpoint, needs to be a united bloc in order to compete with likes of US and China? Well, it, it really is a difficult question because uh, clearly there is no will to, to proceed on, on the way towards federalism. Yeah. Like, like the U.S. would be a federal state or is a federal state, but, but there's no will to go that way. So, so I think we need to find other ways of, of, uh, of uh, improving the unity of the EU and, and improve its decision-making capabilities so that 
it, it would react uh, quicker and, and in, in better way to, to the various situations that that, that uh, world situation brings. Right. And, and also, of course, uh, I, I think what is really functioning well, actually, is the single market. And, and that's, that's something that need, needs to be safeguarded, obviously, because that really is the key for, for many, uh, many of the success stories in the EU. Right. right. So the economy first and then then like values and everything will kind of fall into place? Or? Well, I would say that perhaps values first, but, but of course economy is, is equally important that people really must see that, that, that the EU membership actually brings benefits to, to also their private lives. And, and, uh, but, but here I think uh, also one should look at what's happening, for example, for the infrastructure in, in many of the, the newer member states. And it's quite significant what, what the EU has been able to do. Right. So that's that's another interesting aspect of actually uh, the Ministry for European Integration has done that research, and uh, for the first time since they've been doing that research, Serbian citizens recognize that the EU is the biggest donor here. That's right. And in the past, it's always been like Russian. Yeah. It's like, I mean, they've been giving us airplanes. That's true. I mean, military. Everything, but yeah. Yeah. economic cooperation isn't slim. Um, so I think it's it's a positive step mm. um, now that people recognize, and I think EU has kind of figured that out recently that they need to let people know, and they're investing more into into marketing strategies to, like with billboards, like we finance this road. It's so people know. That's right, and and I think that's also uh, important in that kind of strategic communication is that it's done both by the EU. And, and the government here, because only that way uh, uh, people can get a realistic understanding uh, about uh, what the EU is about and what is the, the uh, let's say, the, the state of mind of the government, what, what direction they really want to go to. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Right. Yeah.